things early career recruitment, the strategies to help you succeed. We'll help you work with Generation Z with all the information that you'll need. It's the Jack and Ollie Show. All right, and away we go. Uh, hello and welcome to the Early Careers Podcast with me, Ollie Sidwell. And me, Jack Denton. And today we are here with Simon Ashworth, Chief Policy Officer for ALP, which stands for the Association of Employment and Learning Providers. That's ALP, not A-ALP. As <laughs> both, not A-ALP. Both, I mean, an idiot would say A-ALP. Yeah, me and Jack definitely didn't think it was called A-ALP. It's called ALP. So uh, Simon is here today to uh, demystify training providers. Mm. What, what a challenge that is. Um, which is going to be the topic for today's podcast. Uh, so, Simon, do you want to introduce yourself and then we can start exploring uh, training providers? Uh, thanks, Ollie. So, I'm uh, Simon Ashworth. I'm the Chief Policy Officer at uh, ALP. Um, I've been involved in uh, further education for about 15, 16 years. Uh, I've worked for a um, number of different training providers. I work for an FE college. I've worked for uh, a large independent training provider, a small training provider. Uh, so I've got lots of experience in the sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, now work for a, a membership organisation that represents probably about 950 different types of training providers. Mm-hmm. Okay, good intro. And I guess the first one to start with, what is a training provider? Yeah. Well, that's a really good question. So uh, training provider is quite broad. Uh, there's lots of different types of training providers. So um, certainly on apprenticeships, the, uh, the, the, probably the, the type of training provider with the largest kind of market share are what's known as uh, ITPs, independent training providers. So they're uh, privately owned um, training providers and they come in all shapes and sizes. So they might be a um, one or two person organization uh, all the way up to probably our, our largest provider member who's probably got about 20,000 learners. Okay. Uh, so alongside independent training providers, you've got uh, general FE colleges, um, you've got universities who are involved in apprenticeships, yeah. uh, and then you've also got some others as well, so employer providers, so employers who uh, deliver to their own staff. So some examples of our members who are employer providers, people like Specsavers, Sainsbury's, Virgin, British Airways. Okay. Yeah. So that's almost an in-house resource that they just provide to... Exactly. So all the employer providers, they only deliver to their own staff or staff of their connected companies. Yeah. Okay. So we've got four types of training provider. We've got independent training providers, FE colleges, universities, and then in-house providers who are you know, part, of an, part of an employer. Yep, absolutely. Nice. And you mentioned there's quite a lot of a lot of them. So how many are there in total? Well, that's a really good question. So, um, yes. Yeah, what, 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 what's your guess, Jack? How many you think there are? One million. Well, well there's not <laughs> as many as lower. It's ridiculous. Lower. Slight, slightly lower. But, um, so at the moment, there's, a, there's a, uh, an official government portal, uh, the Register of Apprenticeship Training Providers, uh, mm-hmm. where the training providers are registered with government and then gone for a process. So at the moment, there's about 2,700 uh, different wow. types of provider. So, um, and they're different types. So some of those are employer providers and some of those are providers who can deliver di- directly and some uh, are, are restricted to be subcontractors. But yeah, about 2,500 at this current point in time. Okay. Um, and what is it that training providers offer to, to businesses? So uh, training providers offer a, they've all got a different offer. So they're all unique in their, their offer and their approach. Um, but they literally offer everything from uh, helping employees with the recruitment and the selection of individuals, uh, identifying their skills, their op- vacancies, uh, matching those to apprenticeship standards, uh, delivering the training or delivering some of the training and bringing in expertise, managing the supply chain, 
uh, and where we're relevant organizing for the endpoint assessment with an endpoint assessment organization so some training providers will offer a full end-to-end service and yeah. some will um, offer specialisms or part of the service and maybe work with other training providers to uh, offer a, a package. So it really is a sort of pick and mix depending on who you work with and what you want. Yeah. You mentioned endpoint uh, assessment providers. What are, what are they? What do they do? So endpoint assessment uh, organisations, they're quite a, a new facet to the apprenticeship market. So when we move from uh, the old apprenticeship frameworks to the new apprenticeship standards, which mm-hmm. have been around for about two years, and we're sort of transitioning across. And the frameworks, they're going to disappear soon, right? So the apprenticeship frameworks, the last date for enrolments on uh, apprenticeship frameworks is um, uh, probably autumn 2020. So at the moment, probably about 60% of starts are on standards and 40% are on the old frameworks, um, which are kind of being phased out and replaced by standards. Um, But going back to the original question, the the endpoint assessment organisations offer the the, uh, endpoint assessment test. So each of the new apprenticeship standards have an independent test at the end to basically verify that the apprentice is competent and capable. So that's um, an external organisation that's separate to the training provider who does that. That has to be separate. That has to be separate. There's, there's uh, uh, lots of rules and regulations about <laughs> yeah. uh, independence and what that looks like. Um, so that there are certain exemptions. But yeah, so I mean, there's some recognised uh, household brands who are uh, certainly within the FE sector who, um, who offer endpoint assessment. So people like Sitting Gills, Pearson, and then also some very sort of specialist, more niche endpoint assessment organisations as well in, yeah. in some of the new sectors that are out there. Okay. This is a little bit like when you're at school, say... The school is where you go, which is like the employer. And then the curriculum is like the standard or the framework that you follow. And then whoever comes in and sets the exam and marks the exam, that's the endpoint assessor. That's a really good example. And probably the other really good example of this is almost like a driving test. So you do your theory, uh, you, you do your practical, and then you have to go and take your driving test at the end to basically prove that you're competent. So you, there's that kind of external rigour that someone is not just self-assessing what they've done. So the old frameworks, it almost was a self-assessment process where the training provider would do the training assessment and um, uh, make sure the learner was kind of competent. The, the whole One of the sort of challenges that came out of the Richard Review, which was why we had the reform of apprenticeships in 2017, mm-hmm. was making sure that the, um, the standards were more fit for purpose uh, and there was this sort of external rigour uh, that formed part of endpoint assessment, which is one of the new features of um, the apprenticeship system that we've got at the moment. So was the biggest difference, you know, when they brought in the standards? Was that having employers build the build the standard? Was that the big difference, or or is it something else? Um, so there's been a raft of changes, really. So the I kind of refer back to the Doug Richard review. So Doug Richard, mm-hmm. the ex um, Dragon out of Dragon's Dell, yeah. then he was um, asked by government to conduct a review of apprenticeships and the apprenticeship system back um, probably about six seven years ago, and. Um, he said that the existing frameworks weren't necessarily fit for purpose in terms of the content. Uh, employers needed more buy-in and more ownership. Um, and also, who's going to pay for this? So there's not enough funding to make sure. So we're getting employees to pay. And then this whole thing around sort of quality and external rigour. So if you kind of unpick um, those, um, the, the, the apprenticeship standards themselves, one of the kind of ethos that came out of these reforms was um, buy employers for employers. So the apprenticeship standards, as you say, uh, are designed by a group of trailblazer employers in their sector who come together, uh, at least 10 organisations, big and small, who come up with a, a, a job role that they then uh, design an apprenticeship standard around. So the apprenticeship standards are a lot more specific to individual job roles rather right, than sectors. Gotcha. Yeah. So back, back in the old days, sort of frameworks, you might be able to do a, a level two uh, in customer service, which you could put into lots of job roles. 
uh, and, and now the apprenticeship standards are a lot more specific to individual job roles. Um, so that, that's got its own sort of challenges and opportunities uh, in terms of the content and technicality and making sure it's really important. That's one of the key things is you're putting the right learners on the right apprenticeship so they can improve their competence in all the aspects to pass that standard. Yeah. Sounds good, though. Obviously, the, the standards have helped bring, I guess, the frameworks up to speed and, I guess, more uh, similar to what's going on in the world because they've been built by a lot of the employers. Is that, is that fair to say? Or is that... uh, yeah, well, definitely. I mean, I think uh, the new apprenticeships have opened up a raft of new uh, vocational areas and mm. levels. So with the new apprenticeship standards, we've got apprenticeships up to level seven now. So yeah. level six and seven degree and degree level, which we never had with frameworks frameworks were predominantly at level two and level three and some highs at four and five um but yeah certainly um the 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 new standards themselves have uh, opened up new sectors new opportunities you know we can now do you can now do an apprenticeship uh, as a nurse as a teacher um a lot more technical uh, areas as well so yeah a real sort of change in terms of quite broad frameworks that fit across different job roles to a lot more specific and the idea is that the friendship standards are transferable so mm. if you did a level two um, uh, junior estate agent with one of the estate agent businesses and you you passed you could then the idea is that you could go and do uh, that job role and have all the skills you would need uh, to do to do that job role for that employer because it's transferable yeah. so we did I have seen examples where learners might have done a customer service framework uh, for one business so it was very much around that business in that sector and they go to another employer and the employer will say, well, actually, they're not kind of competent in the type of areas that we would want. And can we retrain them again, which kind of defeats the object of um, transferability and progression that apprenticeships all about. Right. Um, so um, when people talk about apprenticeship uh, training providers, um, who, who pays them? So employers paying them? Do they get the money from government? Do they get the money from somewhere else? How does that work? How does the funding work for apprenticeships? Oh, so it's always the million dollar question, isn't it? Who kind of pays for it? Uh, it's quite complicated at the moment because we've got a two-tier system right. and it's probably uh, worth unpicking that. So um, uh, in uh, in May 2017, we had the implementation of the apprenticeship levy. Yeah, uh, okay. I think yeah everyone's heard about that, right? That's got Surely. Surely. So very, very sort of high level. Uh, that's a tax on employers. Call it a levy, but it's a tax. It's just a kind of posh word for that. So yeah. it's kind of soft and Sounds good. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> Sound, sounds uh, not, not as hard as a tax. But, yeah. <laughs> so in essence, for employers with a pay bill of more than three million a year, um, they pay half a percent in, into um, the apprenticeship levy, and that can only be spent on um, apprenticeship training. So, uh, in fact, it's only two percent of employers in this country pay wow. the levy. Two um, percent. Just two percent. The larger companies with the big payables. Big payables. Yeah. Now, interesting. Well, I think it's interesting that those two percent of employers employ sixty percent of the workforce. Really? Wow. <laughs> there we go. There's a fact for today, isn't it? Yeah. It's just days looking yeah. at each other trying to work these numbers out. <laughs> so, so the largest levy-paying employer is the NHS, and they pay about two hundred million a year into the levy. Um, wow. So, so that, that that buys you a lot lot of training. But yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So you've got um, the two percent of employers who who pay uh, the apprenticeship levy, uh, and they're, they're on one side, and then you've got the ninety eight percent of employers who are non levy paying employers, and there's a different system, and I'll kind of explain that um, uh, in a moment. So just going on to the just going back to the levy paying employers, they uh, pay into the pot, they have a digital account, and they can draw on that uh, digital account to spend it with a, a recognised training provider. 
And when they uh, spend their levy, they then flip into a, a co-investment model where they pay 5% and the government has a very generous uh, 95% top-up. And that's a change that's mm. coming to play in April this year. Right. So, so that's the 2% that's the of employers who, who pay the levy. The 98% um, the of employers who don't pay the levy, uh, they have to work with a training provider who has a direct uh, government contract for non-levy funding. So there's about 700 of those training providers who've got access to funding. So basically they have an allocation from government mm -hmm. uh, and they're able to draw that down and spend it. Um, so if you're a non-levy paying employer, you still have to pay your 5% um, co-investment. Yeah. So, and then the government tops up by 95%, which is drawn down by the training provider if they've got spare money available in their allocation. So that's how the model is at the moment. The model moving forward, uh, the direction of travel is that um, the government want to move all the uh, non-levy paying employers onto the apprenticeship service, which is the online kind of platform which the levy payers use. And ultimately they will do away with direct contracts and they will allow the 98% of employers who don't pay the levy to, act, to be able to kind of draw down funding in a slightly different way and have a much more... Uh, broader opportunity to work with more than the 700 providers with a direct contract, so potentially the 2,500 that run the, an apprenticeship register. So more choice, and that brings its own opportunities and challenges for employers and providers. Of course. So if you're thinking of starting a, an apprenticeship programme or a, a, adopting a new standard, how can you calculate how much the training element will cost you? So, so you can obviously work out what your 5% contribution will be or whatever other amount of it. So all the existing friendship standards and frameworks are allocated against uh, one of 30 funding bands. Right. Uh, funding bands quite a loose term. Uh, they're actually sort of funding limits. Okay. So that's the amount of uh, government subsidy that's available to pay towards the cost. So it's not the cost. Um, uh, providers might have to pay more, so they might have to top up, or they might negotiate down. So they might say, actually, the funding band for this apprenticeship is £9,000, and I'm going to negotiate with different providers to uh, get a better better deal, better value for money. But um, obviously they need to understand that, you know, what are they buying for that? What are they negotiating? It shouldn't always be about price. Yeah. It's quite interesting. I think a statistic is that 95% of apprenticeships um, since this new system came in in 2017 have been funded at the funding band limits. So there's very little negotiation taking okay. place by employers. So the government expected there to be a lot more negotiation driving down on price. But um, ultimately, employers want a quality programme. So yeah. they think, well, actually, if I'm paying less, actually, I'm going to get a lesser service. Mm -hmm. um, so, it's, so it's all about negotiation with your, your provider. Uh, and certainly, larger uh, employers tend to drive um, sort of economies of scale. Uh, and there's more economies to be scaled to be had with providers around the model and how they operate. And what do the funding levels, you know, from 1 to 30, what's like a, the minimum level and what's the maximum? So the minimum funding band is £1,500, up to £1,500. Um, and then the top band, band 30, is up to £27,000. Right, that's and like the solicitor apprenticeship, I think, is the yeah. top band. Yeah. I don't know many, but I know that one. <laughs> I mean, it's also important to say that programmes like that... Uh, okay, the only one I knew then. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> so programmes like that, they're, they're typically delivered uh, over a three-year programme. So that £27,000 is obviously split oh, across spread. the duration. It's, yeah. um, uh, and 20% of the funding is held back for completion. So basically how the funding works is that 80% uh, of the negotiated price is paid um, on monthly on program payments to the training provider and obviously to learn the stops or drops out that stops yeah. and then there's 20% held back at the end as a completion payment to incentivize people to complete the the, the our aim of the program mm. 
guess that encourages completion, which is obviously the most important thing. How have you found the completion rates? Because I think some um, some providers boast in the ninety percent. Um, I guess some less so, and it, I guess it all comes down to the quality of the provision to how much those uh, learners are enjoying it. I suppose it's part of the um, assessment and selection process. If you're choosing inappropriate people as well for the standard, you might also. So I wouldn't say they're inappropriate. Not going to be able to do well at that particular standard, right? Yeah, so you want to make sure uh, as you recruit them that they're going to be right, which is why I think yeah. you mentioned there's so, so many different training providers offering different niches, maybe different locations. So you want to make sure that, that bit's right. Yeah, so I mean, success rate is a really interesting one. So the national average, so typically the average learner on an average programme uh, you're looking at somewhere around sort of 66 out of 100, so 66% of learners right. uh, complete their apprenticeship. Higher. Yeah, I thought it would be higher than that. It's, um, it's an interesting one, so you get that kind of feedback quite a lot. Yeah. Um, if you think about the, the average churn in the job market these days, you know, most people probably, uh, maybe my dad, he had a job for life, and he yeah. always thinks it's odd when people change jobs every sort of two, three years, you know, and... Uh, that's one of the big challenges with apprenticeships is that, you know, there's a minimum duration that learners have to be on for at least 12 months. Um, and on some of the higher levels and more technical programs, they can be on for three or four years. Um, so you've got to factor in the dropout rate that people will uh, leave because they're sacked, they change job, they emigrate, uh, they might not necessarily pass. So um, the success rate... Um, is important, but probably not as important as it used to be. Um, so one of the things that Ofsted are doing with their new inspection framework and how they inspect the quality of provision is they're uh, looking less at data and less at success rates and looking more at the quality of the teaching and learning. And the, yeah. But yes, definitely, if you're looking to select a training provider, one of the things you should, should do definitely is look at their success rate and quiz them on that. You know, Like you say, there are some... And it changes, but varies by sector. Yeah, so I it, guess there'll be some roles that... You might find more higher dropout rates, the more relevant, or some that are completely yeah, less so. Absolutely, you look at it at a sort of sector level. So yeah. you mentioned sort of ninety percent, and um, you know some of the success rates in some of the IT digital type apprenticeships where there's good progression, uh, it's a real sort of career path. Um, you can get success rates that high. And uh, on, on the lower end, you get things like uh, health and social care, adult care, quite a transient workforce. Success rates are probably lower than 60%. Um, learners struggle to pass because they have to pass the maths and English, and they struggle with that. So it is very different at different levels. Um, but, yeah, you've got to factor in sort of uh, natural churn, which obviously impacts the success rates. Uh, and, and now apprenticeships get longer, you know, with uh, higher in degree apprenticeships. And it'd be interesting, uh, there's no real data on those yet, but, you know, what the success rates of those types of programmes look like over time. I also just Googled it. Yeah. For a quick comparison compared cool. to a university. Dropout rates at university are between 15 and 20%. Okay. So not hugely different. Yeah. So, yeah. Com- there you go. And, and again, it's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? You Information. Know, I thought you had more to give on that. No, just, uh, just that's interesting, fact. isn't it? Because that, that will vary by institutions. Yeah, so. some of them were saying it's like over 20%, some of them less than 10%. But definitely, success rate and churn and retention is something that uh, if you're looking to. Uh, work with a provider, whether you're a college or a uh, university or an independent provider, you should ask them. And that information published, uh, published, so the government published that, so you can actually go in and corroborate and verify what they're saying. So there's lots of lots of other things out there which you can help you choose the right provider. You know, kind of uh, the government to move more to a TripAdvisor approach, so employers and apprentices are able to comment about their experience, their training providers, what they like, what they don't like. So there's a lot more information now in the public domain as there ever has been around. Uh, the experiences of 
training providers, the good, the bad and ugly. Yeah, I think um, when uh, Anne Milton, the skills minister, kind of mentioned that, was it last time last year? I think both Jack and I and our separate businesses have both focused on thinking how we can come from a different approach to try and add value to, I think, what Ofsted are doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, something from my apprenticeship perspective, um, we're using the reviews we get from young people who are on apprentices to get their feedback around um, their training providers and then put that into a training provider table as voted for by them. So that's one thing we're really trying to factor in to make sure we've got a very different perspective, I like say, from those that are on learning. I don't know what, Jack, what's, what's your approach well, with it? Yeah, similar, well, similar sort of thing, which is trying to um, uh, help employers figure out more easily which training providers they should, they should potentially work with mm. because I think it's difficult for people to, to work that out. So I think that's one of the things that we're going to be working on. Yeah. Taking into account, you know, what we're doing in our awards, yeah. but then also taking into account what the market wants. So how training providers feel that they should be assessed, and also what employers are looking for, specific things they use to try and make those decisions, so that people can can find that together. Yeah. So I think hopefully, you know, across the market, it should become easier over the coming years in order for people to be able to find and choose a provider that works works for them. Yeah. Because that's the difficulty. There's just so many providers. I think, yeah, two and a half thousand is, is a lot. <laughs> There's not usually that much choice for I don't know, many things <laughs> where you're trying to choose between. And I think that's where I mean, location is really helpful. Like if you're in a certain location, then you are kind of restricted in some areas. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's a really interesting point because um, we used to have quite a restricted market in mm. terms of uh, access to uh, government funding. And, um, you know, back in 2017, the, the government opened up the market, which is why we've now got uh, sort of two. 2,700 odd providers on the on the apprenticeship register. With lots of those, with lots of those new providers that, that sort of came about following this change in, in opening the market? Significant number. Right. So, you know, there was probably seven, 800 with access to funding and then there was a raft of subcontractors that kind of ha- had access indirectly. But uh, uh, absolutely, as soon as they um, opened up the uh, market, we saw a big influx of new organisations um, some have been really good and uh, you know, commercial training businesses who've got into government funding and uh, provide really great service. Uh, but unfortunately, there's been a, quite a raft of new providers who've come in who've come in for the wrong reasons or yeah. they might be good at training, but they don't understand Ofsted or um, you know, the compliance and the funding requirements. So it, um, you know, there's lots of kind of accusations flying around around the quality of providers, but it's kind of important to say that... Um, of private providers inspected by Ofsted, so Ofsted, another uh, really important measure, uh, have been recognised as being good or outstanding. Um, And for colleges, it's about slightly lower. So it's about 75% of colleges who've been inspected uh, are good or outstanding. So there there are lots and lots of good and outstanding providers, um, but there are lots of new providers who come into the market. And some have been uh, transformational in terms of how they deliver and uh, what they deliver. And there's some, some really good ones in, in London. Uh, and then there's been others who didn't realise what the investment, what the commitment is, what an apprenticeship is, um, you know, and try to rebadge their existing training to, yeah. to, to get that government subsidy. So uh, it's really important to look at track record, uh, you know, look at some of those um, you know, externally published reports by Ofsted and others. Uh, but you know, I would say that cer- certainly by the end of the year, the apprenticeship register will look quite different. So we're having yeah. a bit of a, uh, a government having a bit of a purge, really. So having opened the doors and allowed lots of providers in, they're now kind of raising the bar and getting providers to reapply to join that register. Um, mm-hmm. So I would have thought that by the end of the year, there probably won't be as many providers on there that there are now. Um, 
But that's the kind of key thing that if you're going to be with any provider, you need to make sure they're on that register. So the Register of Apprenticeship Training Providers, which you can access on good.uk. If they're not on there, then that's, you know, you should rule them out straight away. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But you could if you wanted to, or you can. Oh, you I mean, I'm, not, I'm not saying you, you'd want to, but... You, you can't work with anybody uh, who's not on the apprenticeship right. register. Um, and people will join that all the time, so it's a dyna dy dynamic register. Uh, okay. But what I would say, the, uh, the we're expecting the sort of scope of that register to look uh, be scaled down based on um, uh, what's happening in the marketplace at the moment. Um, but, I mean, a couple of other things you mentioned, Ollie, that are really important when talking to providers is, is um, a lot of providers say that they have a national offer. And they don't, they might be kind of um, based regionally. Um, so, you know, there are government portals where you go on, you can put on who you are, what you offer. And there are some uh, providers who um, probably exaggerate slightly about what they offer and where they offer it. Okay. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, that's all types of providers, not just sort of independent providers. So it's, um, so, so it's important to do your research, understand exactly what they offer as well. I mean, we've seen in the past where, uh, providers will say that they offer types of programs and then it's a hook for employers so when an employer phones and say actually i want that apprenticeship framework or standard they'll say we don't do that but we do something similar yeah. so it's really important to understand you know we're, we're now in a in, in a market where the employees in the driving seat they're in control of the funding um you know they should decide what they want and how they have it so lots of choice uh, and lots of opportunity <laughs> Earlier, we, we spoke about earlier about the four different types of training provider, mm -hmm. but two of those are kind of minorities, right? So the in-house ones and universities, as a percentage, probably it's a very small um, amount of the overall training. So when we look at independent training providers and colleges, what are the are there any differences between those two, or um, if there are, what are the biggest differences between the two? Well, yeah, I mean, just going back to your, your point about the four different types of providers, there's probably about 100 universities on the register, uh, and obviously they're the really the only ones who've got degree awarding powers, so mm -hmm. certainly level six and seven. Uh, employer providers, there's probably about three, 400. Um, yeah. So that leaves you with, with around sort of 300-odd colleges uh, and then a, a raft of providers. And we, there are also um, charities, you know, uh, some big... Um, independent providers who are actually charities as opposed to probably owned businesses. But, um, you know, so it's a really good question because, you know, there are other uh, membership bodies who represent those. And uh, mm -hmm. for us, it's not about uh, colleges are bad and providers are good. You know, the, the market will decide um, who's the most responsive. You know, colleges have a, a place in the marketplace. They tend to be, um, have a day release model. You know, very much learners will go in uh, on a Friday and do their training on, on site, in centre, you know, a college uh, supports the local community. Uh, they offer a lot more than just apprenticeships. Whereas typically, uh, you'll find that training providers are a lot more agile. They're more responsive. Um, they deliver a lot more of the training in the workplace uh, around the needs of uh, employers, the timetable. Um, and the kind of key thing is that 75% you know, of all apprenticeships at the moment are delivered by independent training providers. So uh, at the end of the day, it's kind of employer choice. But there are different models, uh, um, you know, some of the college, if you look at the from a sector perspective, colleges dominate construction. You know, it's quite um, an, in, an expensive program to set up, establish facilities. That's a lot more of um, day release, block release type training. So again, it's a lot of it's kind of sector by sector, but everyone's got a role. Uh, well, but at different levels, uh, for example, particular levels of apprenticeship are more common. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's historically sort of level two, level three is, is uh, colleges and independent training providers. And as I mentioned, um, uh, universities have kind of come into this space and offer uh, de degree programs. 
think uh, one of the um, misunderstandings is there are also degree level programs which don't have a degree attached. So an example is the um, level seven professional accountant. So instead of doing a degree, you can do the professional equivalent. So your SEMA or your ACCA. So again, there are providers that offer that who aren't necessarily universities. But yeah, obviously the universities are, um, anybody on the register can uh, deliver any level of provision, but um, that gets you into a whole new uh, discussion about regulation. And um, uh, so for example, uh, Ofsted are responsible for inspecting um, apprenticeships at level two to five, and the QAA, Qualifications uh, Authority, um, obviously, and the Office for Students look after level six and seven. So some, oh, uni- didn't know. So some universities uh, choose not to get involved below level six because they um, don't want to get involved in that kind of quality regime with Ofsted because it looks quite different to how they're set up and how they work with QAA. Right. I think it's also as well for me, especially when I started um, looking at understanding the levels well. So intermediate and advanced, they're straightforward because they start at two, finish at two, or start at three, finish at three. Yeah. Then when you go for higher and degree apprenticeships, that's where it gets more complicated, because a, a higher apprenticeship can start at four and finish at four, or it could start at four and go all the way to seven. And so people always assume, because it's a degree apprenticeship, that it might, must be a higher level. But a degree apprenticeship could finish at six, whereas a higher apprenticeship could finish at seven. It might not. It might only go to four, or it might go to five, or six, or whichever level. I think that's... Um, uh, difficult for people to, to get their heads around and I think it's useful for them to understand that distinction between them. Yeah, so I mean historically apprenticeships, you know, in, until probably um, four years ago 99% of apprenticeships were at level two and three mm-hmm. um, and then we had higher apprenticeships come in with some of the apprenticeship frameworks but they were still in the minority and then the apprenticeship stand- standards were um, started almost, the ones that started to appear were the high level ones, we're kind of working backwards so we've got lots of frameworks that uh, are at lower levels and lots of apprenticeship standards are at high levels and ultimately when they flip over we should have a whole suite which allows uh, progression you know so you can come in at level two you can do level three you might be able to come straight in at level five um, you know one of the um, most popular degree apprenticeships is the level six chartered manager uh, it's been a very popular program and you mentioned up to kind of level seven you know there are there's discussions at the moment about a, a level eight so a phd okay. level apprenticeship and um, whether that fits with the policy rhetoric um, <laughs> and, and whether that will get approved. So um, the, the landscape of apprenticeships has changed significantly over quite a quick period of time. And I think one of the big challenges around the sector is that uh, degree apprenticeships are more costly to deliver. Uh, they, they attract more government funding. So, you know, you potentially get um, seven or eight level two adult care workers for one degree apprenticeship. So when, okay. you've got, when you've got a finite pot of money, whether it's a tax or the government sort of subsidy, uh, obviously your buying power gets reduced because it costs more money. So that's one of the big challenges at the moment and ahead around the budget and will the budget be able to absorb the higher cost of apprenticeships generally and obviously the higher cost of the high-level programmes, which are getting more and more popular for various reasons. Yeah. You talk a bit about that, about change, and I think there's a lot of, uh, certainly listeners and certainly a lot of people in the early career space that might be quite new to apprenticeships and working with training providers, how it works... I guess certainly myself, I'm, I cast myself as one of those. Certainly, we got involved when Doug Richard did his first review uh, back in 2012. And you just think the market has been like this, and this is how it's always been, because that's you don't know that. So you do see a lot of fast change. But you mentioned there, that actually, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, it wasn't anywhere near what it's looking like today. And things are ramping up fast. And if we only really introduced degree apprenticeships fairly recently, and then you're suddenly saying there's a level eight going to come out, 
So how would you take the whole evolution of that time and it kind of explain that to everyone to give a bit of perspective, I guess? It's a really interesting point because uh, we're doing some work in the US and the US uh, is, um, they've got about half a million apprenticeships in the US and, and it's literally like going back in time, sort of 10 years ago, 15 years ago here, where, um, you know, apprenticeships were, uh, they call them youth apprenticeships, so young people uh, in the traditional trades. And uh, the, the ex expansion and rapid expansion that we had was um, very much uh, apprenticeships being expanded for all age, you know, so... Um, um, adult apprenticeships. Um, and most are, right? Most, are, most learners are more than 24 years? Like yeah, so the vast majority, so probably um, two, two thirds of apprentice, apprentices are uh, already employed over the age of 25. Um, you know, a lot of people think, I mean, my parents think that um, uh, they're just from that sort of generation that they think apprentices are young people in uh, traditional construction sectors, uh, mm -hmm. but they're not. You know, you've got. Um, uh, we had an inquiry from the press today about um, case studies for um, apprentices over the age of 60 because they, 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 yeah, one of the, yeah, one of the yeah, newspapers yeah. wanted to do a story on that. So there is no upper age limit on apprenticeships. And, um, and that, one of the big shifts on the reforms has been um, because of the way the funding works, there's less um, priority and funding available to support young people. Um, and the, the funding's almost been equalised. So yeah. you probably pick up there's... Um, you know, quite a, a furore around upskilling, reskilling existing employees, putting putting um, senior staff on MBA level apprenticeships. Uh, is that what the policy is about, and does the system need rebalancing? So, the fi last fifteen years, we've seen a massive, massive growth, and the government had an aspiration to get to three million apprenticeships starts by twenty twenty. Mm -hmm. It was on track for that, and then we had the reforms, we had the co investment. So before um, employees didn't have to make a financial co uh, yeah. contribution. Uh, and we didn't have the 20% off the job requirements. So that really kind of shunted um, the government aspiration to get to 3 million starts by 2020. And they've always kind of given that up because they're so far off it. Oh, I'm say given up. I've, I've always wondered, just, though. We, we should, quality now, isn't it? I've always got quality over quantity. <laughs> this number of the 3 million, was that over that period of time, 3 million starts? Or are they trying to get to a point where it's, it's not, they're not looking to get to a point where it's 3 million starts per year? No, so it was over a period, so it was over the parliament. So right. if basically the, the rationale was that if you look to the current run rates of growth on apprenticeships mm. and uh, you factored in the fact that 50% of the employees paying the levy hadn't engaged with apprenticeships before, mm -hmm. and then you put in a 2.3% uh, workforce target of public sector, yeah. and they were supposed to be the top-up, I suppose, to make them pay the tax, get them involved in apprenticeships, and for force the public sector to do more, and that would then... Uh, bolt on to get us to the three million apprenticeship starts by the end of the parliament which is 2020 right. uh, unfortunately the reforms have seen the numbers decline significantly uh more you know probably in in some areas sort of 40 30 40 percent drop off from two years ago um again different sectors different levels so yeah we've almost kind of gone for a period of rapid growth and uh I won't say kind of consolidated but yeah we've had a massive sort of speed bump in the road and we're starting to rebuild, but we're a long, long way off the sort of volumes that we do. What do, you, do they think the best estimate is of what we might be able to get to by 2020? Is there, a, is there a, any numbers people are bouncing around? I mean, uh, you're probably looking around. I mean, at one stage, we, we needed 80,000, 90,000 starts a month, and we're a long way off that. So I would have thought it would be somewhere near two and a half million. Uh, I mean, okay. uh, So not, not miles away. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not like they only hit like 100,000. 
I think uh, the, you know the story about where the three million came from. You know, was a sort of apparently a sort of uh, Nick Bowles. Um, oh, we did two million before. You know, what can we do next time? And yeah. uh, you know, there wasn't uh, great uh, method in the madness on that. Two point seven five million doesn't sound as cool. Does no, it? No, three million, yeah. go for it, yeah. sort of thing. But we could have got there if you look to the run rate and what the aspirations were. But uh, you know, we had a big ramp up before the reforms. And then the first of May, the numbers dropped off a cliff. Uh, because of all the changes, and mm. um, so yeah, the sector's had to kind of pick itself up off the floor. Yeah. And you think yeah, it will, will recover? And you think it will get back on track to what it was before in terms of that sort of growth rate? Uh, I don't think it. I mean, there's some tweaks and changes in the market. We've seen mm. a sort of co-investment that employers are re- uh, required to pay cut from 10% to 5%, which makes a difference. One of the big issues that we hear from employers and providers is the 20% off the job requirement is the biggest barrier, um, and there needs to be some flexibility within that. So employers are saying, well, we're paying the levy, um, and then we've got to uh, infill for the twenty uh, minimum of twenty percent time of the, when these people are having their off-the-job training. Where, yeah. You know, and there's quite a lot of misunderstanding about off-the-job and what that means. So off-the-job doesn't necessarily mean away from the workplace; uh, it just means kind of unproductive time. So you can do your off-the-job at your desk. So you might be doing e-learning or virtual labs. Mm-hmm. So some of it, uh, some of the terminology is not very helpful because off-the-job implies away from the workplace, but. Um, yeah. Best way of describing it is unproductive time. But if you're a big retailer or you know, um, you know, big supermarket, you know, twenty percent um, personnel cost on top of paying the levy is an, an additional sort of cost to to you. Mm. And that's why a lot of employees say, "Well, sorry, I'm just going to write off the levy because I'll be paying twice if I have to make that commitment to give people time away from their day job and have to fill in fill in those jobs in hospitality, retail, service sector, uh, where we've seen the biggest decline, health yeah. and social care." Right. Okay. So you, we spoke a bit about the history there, and you've kind of gone back and shown what it was like, and you said there's been, I think your, your word was a speed bump uh, in terms of how we're progressing. Trapdoor, trap I think, was maybe. <laughs> the... <laughs> um, how, where do you see this going, though? What, what are we going to be talking about in, say, five, ten years? What's the landscape going to look like? Um, what can, I guess, the, the listeners uh, do to prepare themselves and think about this? So you know, the, the FE system... Um, historically had very little change you know it was kind of very evolutionary and um, you know the reforms was the biggest change ever you know the, the product the price the, the you know the, um, the apprenticeship standards endpoint assessment employees having to pay uh, so massive massive change and um, you know there's still significant change on the horizon e- e- evolution one of the biggest challenges I suppose for the sector is um, is is funding and funding in the system yeah. and that will drive um, you know what gets paid for what gets a government subsidy so um, it's in a kind of a public domain that um, the the public accounts committee um, and the national audit office identified that there'd be a, a 500 million pound uh, overspend at the current run rate yeah, by 2021 20, that is quite a lot it's quite strange actually uh, the the year just finished. Uh, the government has just given three hundred million back to the treasury um, of underspend. So we're flipping oh, right. as the numbers start to build up and the um, the higher funded programs come through. They obviously cost more. Yeah. Um, so unless unless the FE system gets more money into the system through the spending review, and there's lots of different ways they could do that. You know, they could increase the scope of the levy. They could bring more employees into scope of the levy. That's unlikely, the current climate with Brexit, tax on business, tax on jobs. So if there is no new money into the system, we then probably head down a, a model of rationing. You know, what will government give a subsidy to 
um, on what won't it? You know, will they stop funding um, degree or degree level apprenticeships? Will they prioritise certain types of provision? Will they prioritise certain learners, a certain age, or certain demographics? Maybe industries, STEM. You know, like STEM, they always talk about STEM. Yeah, so they've always talked about sort of young young people, guarantee groups, STEM priority. Um, you know that the, the you know the minister uh, has been quite outspoken that um, she's not a big fan of you know some of these programs where um, nothing against the rules, but um, you know some of the MPs have been saying you've got um, members of staff on six figure salaries doing a, a funded MBA. Is that okay. what the apprenticeship reforms are about? I thought it was about you know the forty percent of young people who leave school without a GCSE maths and English, and they need to uh, you know a level two apprenticeship is you know a good starting point for yeah. a, a career in social mobility. So um, unless there's any new money that comes into the system, there's lots of different levers the government might pull on, which impacts employers. You know yeah. what they fund, who they fund, the percentage that they subsidise or not. So all those kind of levers are quite easy to kind of pull it and pull and pull to kind of um, change the buying habits and buying patterns of employers. And that, that could be loads of different things. So it yeah. could be something as, as, as straightforward as saying, um, we see all apprenticeships as a priority. You know, the, the, the minister is ex-health um, service, so she doesn't want um, to pull the rug out for things like um, degree apprenticeships for nurses and teachers, big priority areas, need more people in there. Yeah, yeah which I think we'd all probably agree with. We'd all agree with. <laughs> but, you know, so there are other approaches that might say, well, actually, we want to stop sort of um, people on big salaries doing an apprenticeship uh, or having a subsidy. So actually, should there be a wage threshold? And so actually, if you're earning over a certain amount, um, you won't get that subsidy. Or, yeah. you know, will they say that if you're doing a management programme, uh, the government will pay 50% instead of 95%. So it's it's important for employers to understand that the current market, the current conditions, the current rules um, is is always subject to change and flex. Yeah. And that's why you know employers I always feel sorry for employers because they've got a business to run, haven't they? And um, you know that's where their sort of trusted provider is really key because their trusted mm-hmm. provider should be saying these are the changes. You know, a lot of these government changes don't come in straight away. They'll say, right, these changes will be coming in from the next academic year or the next financial year, so let's help you create a plan. Let's think about um, how that might change, you know, what you might need to prioritise. You know, young people and priority sectors, it's never going to go away. So sort of 16 to 24-year-olds, big government priority. Um, STEM is another big priority. But, um, you know, will the government keep funding, uh, you know, professional accountants, senior managers to do apprenticeship programmes where there's been massive ramp up. Uh, I, I would think there'd be quite a lot of change in those areas, but mm-hmm. I haven't got a ball. If there is a change and um, you happen to have a bunch of learners on a on a standard, they wouldn't just cut that, would they? They'd let the person finish that. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. The, the, so there's the, no worry there that, oh no. God, we've got 100 people on this standard, they might change the funding halfway through a four-year programme. So, so you're right. So the government policy has always been once the learners are on, they're committed, the funds get attached to them. So, um, you know, when they, they've changed some of the funding, um, some of the standards, you know, there's a, a transition period and anyone uh, funded up to that point will continue on those arrangements. Um, whereas obviously new starts from the 1st of August, the 1st of January, whatever that dead might be, uh, these rules in terms of eligibility, funding commitment all come into play. So it's yeah. the government don't kind of, flick a switch and it all changes um, there is usually a sort of consultation and obviously uh, a build up to a significant change like this okay and you said you haven't got a mystic ball well I, I get a lot of people <laughs> ask me kind of what uh, what might happen but when you kind of if you pick up the vibes the rhetoric you know that there's not enough money in the system the government needs to prioritise young people STEM um, 
when you look at the the, the 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 balance of the priorities where it's likely to fall you know you get an, a view of um where's more favorable than other areas um, yeah. i know one of the big big um you know one of the big things in the pipeline at the moment is the uh, review of post 18 education um and it might be that some of the funding from he gets pulled across into fe so actually um you know, one of the things might be if someone's doing a degree apprenticeship, they might take out an advanced learning loan and um, it'd be funded that way rather than through a government subsidy. So, again, there's lots of different things that might change. Uh, yeah. So it's just important for employers to understand that um, it's not going to change uh, today, but, uh, you know, the, ru- the rules and regulations in government direction of travel will change over time. Yeah, good message to, to I guess, the listeners. That I guess the, to, to summarise, uh, maybe want to help with this one, Jack, uh, summarise that, that there is that there's been a hell of a lot of almost revolution you know, it's been so fast uh, and it's not expected to suddenly stop overnight so I think those that are kind of on programs uh, do your research uh, around the, the sort of training providers you're working with and certainly those that are thinking about starting or growing a program uh, really look into the ins and outs of I guess, completion rates success rates uh, anything to add to that I think it if any employers are looking for guidance, I think a good place is is ALP is a is an organisation for people to go to, which represents a large, you know, proportion of the sector. So if you're looking to see what the latest changes are, presumably they would be able to find out the information. Is it possible for employers to be involved with ALP? Is it, they can. Yes, I mean we're we're a membership body. We've been set up for about 15 years. We were predominantly set up to support independent training providers, but we've got an extremely diverse membership now through the reform. So we have a number of employer providers, employers, endpoint assessment organisations. Uh, but yeah, so a part of our role is to lobby government, but also inform our members. You know, um, they're just as busy as well, kind of delivering these apprenticeships and working with employers. Um, so absolutely, it um, you know one of the big challenges is lots of information comes out of government but mm. um, how do you assimilate that and actually give some really sort of sharp short sharp important messages about there's going to be a big change here in policy and yeah. what do you need to do to evolve your business and sometimes employers and providers get caught out which is obviously not great for everyone when yeah. a, something like that happens yeah the um, final question i think is are there any questions that we haven't asked you yet that we should have asked you Again, another really good question, isn't it? We've covered a, a, a real breadth of, um, of sort of topics today. I think uh, only really to say, you know, apprenticeships a fantastic opportunity um, for all ages. Like I say, I think moving forward, there'll be much more focus on young people and priority mm. sectors. But, mm. uh, you know, they are life-changing opportunities and uh, they, they're for learners of all ages, all opportunities. You know, you can now come in at level two, work your way up, do a degree apprenticeship. At the moment, it's uh, funded by the employer. You know, there's no debt. You kind of earn whilst you learn. Degree apprenticeship has been fantastic in terms of the brand. So mm. there's a real buzz around apprenticeships and, uh, you know, the employees involved. But um, obviously one of the big issues is about funding, making sure there's enough funding in the system, which uh, well, we're obviously kind of working with government on to try and make sure that, um, that you know, there's enough money to go around. But, uh, yeah, certainly obviously encourages many employees to, to take advantage of apprenticeships, yeah. you know, re- recruiting new talent, uh, training existing staff I think is you know lots of new apprenticeship standards so yeah if you're interested certainly uh, take part yeah what a good summary that is and I think we can both say that 
well, everything around apprenticeships is so, uh, I guess, encouraging, so amazing to see all the, the progress and development with it all. And yeah, we've spoke through quite a lot of different things today. Yeah, I think um, it's a good overview of, you know, training advisors helps people understand how that landscape works and how things might look like in the mm. future, what they might look like. So, um, Have we demystified training providers, do you think? I think oh, I'm totally, <laughs> totally demystified. Well, if, you have, if you haven't, do let us know or get or in touch with Simon. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, all I many other things to kind of say is that, uh, you know, we talked about change and... Um, you know, the only kind of constant in, in FE is change. It's the change that's constant. So it, uh, like I say, it, um, we've gone for a revolutionary change, but I think we'll continue to go for an evolutionary change, certainly over the next two or three years. And the system kind of uh, will, will kind of settle itself out. Employers in the driving seat, you know, good providers will, will, will float to the top. And, um, you know, the, some of the providers who don't deliver a, an employer-led service will kind of drop out the market. Ultimately, the employers in the driving seat with the buying power. So, yeah, mm. interesting times, but uh, lots of change. Change is uh, kind of uh, second nature. <laughs> good, good summary. Uh, Simon, thank you so much. That's yeah, been really, really interesting. Yeah, really good. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And that would be the Early Quiz podcast. So thank you from me, Ollie. And thank you from me, Jack. Uh, go on, Simon. Say thank you. Thanks both. <laughs> uh, see you all next time. Bye for now. For all things early career recruitment, the strategies to help you succeed will help you work with Generation Z with all the information that you'll need. It's the Jack and Ollie Show.